You're listening to A Catholic Bible Study on the Gospel of Matthew with Scripture scholars Dr. Tim Gray and Dr. Michael Barber. This podcast is produced by the Augustine Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Form Now. I'm Tim Gray, president of the Augustine Institute, and joining me is Dr. Michael Barber, who is a professor of scripture here at the Augustine Institute. And we're going to continue our ongoing Bible study on the Gospel of Matthew. So last time we completed chapter 24, which was a rather heavy theological treatise of Jesus speaking about the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, and the end of the world. And uh, now he's moving into chapter 25, where he talks about our own personal testing and trials at the end of our life, how we will be judged and how he was going to separate, separate the sheep from the goats, the wise from the foolish, the faithful from the unfaithful. And so there's quite a lot to cover here in chapter 25. Right. But- I know, I know, you know, a lot of Tim's students, when uh, he's teaching, they're really anxious about that final exam. And if they just had the study questions ahead of time, if they knew those questions ahead of time, they'd really study hard for them. But here we're given the, the study questions for our ultimate final exam, the final judgment. Jesus is going to tell us in this chapter exactly what we are going to be judged on. Uh, yeah, a lot. On the lot final, yeah, on, if, on the if final my students had the exam, a lot, a lot fewer of them would fail. And uh, so <laughs> hopefully by us sharing the final exam of Jesus, a lot fewer of us will fail. That's right. That's on right. On that last day, right? That's right. And so in Matthew 25, we have a theme being picked up in Matthew 25 that was important in Matthew 24, right? So we saw how in Matthew 24, there were really two parts to Jesus' sermon, right? He's talking about what is going to happen on that day when the temple is going to be destroyed. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but of that day, no one knows the day or the hour. And then he says, watch and be ready, right? And so now he's going to tell some parables that illustrate that need for watchfulness, for vigilance. And so we read in the beginning of Matthew 25, a story about 10 virgins. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And of course, here we have the foolish and the wise. Yeah, and we see that, right? And it echoes what we saw with Jesus' first homily in the Gospel of Matthew at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where at the end of chapter 7, Jesus says, he who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. He who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like the foolish man who builds on the sand. And so you get, you know, a foolish man and a wise man at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And now at the end, we have five wise women and five foolish right. uh, women. And so now it's a five to one ratio, Michael. So it's like, you know, is, is heaven going to be five to one ratio of women to men? I, I don't know. But, uh, but, but Jesus is all inclusive here. You got men and women, the foolish and wise. And this parable is going to have a lot of different echoes to that first homily of Jesus. Right. So let's just underscore this, that, of course, Matthew is divided up into these different major speeches of Jesus, as we've seen. And uh, at the beginning of the gospel, we have the first major discourse of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Now in Matthew 23, 24, 25, we have what we might call the Sermon on the Mounts. Jesus begins in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, where he... Uh, condemns, he excoriates, really, the scribes and the Pharisees. He leaves, and then he goes out on the Mount of Olives, and he continues his his teaching about judgment and 
um, what will happen to the temple and what will happen on the last day. Yeah, that comparison is so important. And we talked, I think, about how the, the three kind of pillars of Jewish catechesis was the idea of Torah, and then the idea of Avodah, which was the idea of worship and temple. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing was Gemelud Hasidim, which means works of mercy. And you know, the Sermon on the Mount moves in that threefold movement where Jesus talks about, you have heard that it was said, speaking of the Torah, but I say to you, so teaching Torah. Then in chapter six, he moves to works of piety, which you'd expect teaching on the temple, but he talks about works of piety, prayer, almsgiving, mm-hmm. fasting. And then in the third part of the Sermon on the Mount, he works he goes to works of mercy, uh, building treasure in heaven by being generous and giving alms and things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And so you, if you look at Matthew 23, he upbraids now, he's kind of judging the teachers of the Torah. Mm. Then in Matthew 24, he's judging the temple. Mm. And now in Matthew 25, we all fall under the judgment of God mm. individually by what we do or don't do. Mm-hmm. And so what we read is that these uh, virgins go out to meet the bridegroom and the foolish ones take their lamps, but they have no oil in them. Now, it's important to clarify what's going on here. In the ancient world, they didn't have electricity. <laughs> and so the yeah. way your lamps worked was based on oil. And oil was a very valuable substance. Now, you lived in the Holy Land, so you've, you've well, had a lot of experience looking yeah, at I love some that. of these and, and I can't believe we didn't think about bringing the oil have, lamp in. I, I, <laughs> because, yeah, you right. know, uh, we have these great oil lamps, a first century oil lamp that... Uh, I got from one of the caves of Qumran that was given to the Augustine suit by a generous benefactor. And these oil lamps fit in the palm of your hand because they couldn't be very big because if they burn too much oil, you'd burn through your oil supply and your oil supply was limited because the oil that they used in the ancient world was olive oil. And so you could only get so many olives and so many pressings of the olives. Right. And you had to use some of that pressing for your cooking, for the olive oil, for your cooking oil. You had to use some of that olive oil for your basically your, your skin, your lotion, your, it was your hand lotion. Because you know? it's dry yeah, there. it's very and dry and chapped. Oil, and right? so then you, you would have use it for um, anointing, but also and for healing wounds and anointing wounds. But then you'd use it for light. And you have a limited supply. So as you burn through your oil supply, you're running out of light and you had to wait for the next season. You couldn't go <laughs> dig in the ground and get more oil. It was a very limited supply and very seasonal. You can't just order it from Amazon. No, you couldn't. Yeah, and so and so oil was precious and light was precious. And so that's why when the foolish versions run out of oil, it's not easy to go get it. When you run out of your oil supply, you're stuck until the next season. That's right. And so What's the story all about? We read in verse five, the bridegroom was delayed and they all became drowsy and slept. And here we have a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the garden of Gethsemane. And we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we'll talk about that more later. But finally, the bridegroom comes at midnight and the foolish virgins haven't brought enough oil. And so they fell asleep. And so they didn't turn off their lamps or then extinguish their lamps. They go to the wise version and say, well, give us some of your oil. And they said, no, we can't do that because then we won't be prepared when the bridegroom comes. And so they have to go, the, 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 the wise ones go into the marriage feast and the foolish ones have to go and try to find some oil somewhere to buy. And when they come back, they're locked out of the wedding feast. And then we have this amazing line where they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now, that is a remarkable expression because 
uh, as we talked about when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the only time in the Greek version of the Old Testament you hear that Lord, Lord used is in reference to, to God to himself. God himself. You see that in Exodus right? 34, verse 6, where as the Lord tells Moses to put his face in the cleft of the rock and he passes by with all his glory, he says, the Lord, the Lord. That's right. May God merciful and gracious. And so it's a major claim. It's a major claim. Right. And so we, we heard that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now Jesus is using that expression here, and it's pretty clear in context. In context, he's talking about his own coming, right? You have to be ready for when the Son of Man comes. So Jesus is identifying himself as the Lord. But let's be clear. Before Jesus goes on, as he will in the next couple of uh, stories, to talk about that final day of judgment, the context shows us that Jesus is Lord, Lord, within the context of a marriage banquet. And that's also significant because in the Old Testament, in the scriptures of Israel, God is described as Israel's bridegroom. God isn't just Israel's maker. God isn't just Israel's king. God wants to enter into an intimate relationship with his people. And that's what he's calling us all into. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, on the last day, many will say, Lord, Lord, and you will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So it's so important that we not just do the good works. It's ultimately not about just doing good works. What Christ is calling us into is love, right? Mm -hmm. We are called to know him. We are called to know the bridegroom. Yeah. And the way we know him is the same way we know anybody else. We have conversation. We we listen to them. And that's why I'm so passionate about these Bible studies and the Bible in a year that we do, because, because it's really here in Scripture that the Lord is speaking to us and that we have that opportunity to come to know him. You're right, Michael. It's so important to know. And I love that covenant theme of knowing throughout Scripture. Yeah. You know, Adam knows Eve and she conceives. And so this idea of intimate knowing, an intimate relationship that you, that you speak of, and it reminds me of uh, exactly what this imagery of the lamp and the oil is all about. You know, we talked about how precious oil is, and at the center of this parable is Jesus's metaphor of the lamp. Mm -hmm. And you have a lamp, and then you have the, the virgins who are foolish who run out of oil. What does that mean? And I think if we go back to Jesus' earlier Sermon on the Mount, we can understand what this, how this metaphor is actually mm -hmm. working and what the symbolism of the oil and the lamp and the light is really signifying. And that takes us back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, you know, a, you know, a, a, a lamp is not uh, put under a bushel basket, but on a stand so that all may see its light, so that, the, so that your good works may be known and that they may give glory to your Father. And so Jesus refers to good works as the light and the oil, and that good works is exactly what you said. It's really love, mm -hmm. because you can't get the bridegroom if you're not in love with the bridegroom. Right. You can't be welcomed into the eternal heavenly wedding banquet if you're not in love. You're not going to be in heaven. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very yeah. well said. All right, so then it ends, watch therefore for mm -hmm. you... No, neither the day nor the hour, picking up on the theme we saw at the end of Matthew 24. Then Jesus tells a second parable about a man going out on a journey, and he calls his servants together, and he entrusts to them his property, and he gives to each of them talents. Now, when we hear the word talents, I think we um, immediately think of you know, our unique abilities, you know, the things that we're good at, our skills, our special gifts. And uh, that's an appropriate application of this, but 
Uh, actually, talents is a, a unit of money in the ancient world. Yeah, right? so to say you're talented was really saying you're rich. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> you know, right. Uh, it has nothing to do with personal skills and abilities. That's right. It was really about your your bank and account. And the English expression of talents in that way actually flows out of the Christian interpretation of this. So it's really Christian culture that gives us the idea that we all have unique talents, by the way. Yeah, yeah. it's really fascinating that, that this idea. Of, and so, you know, here we have this master who's going to leave his uh, servants with a certain amount of talents. And what, what's really striking about the, the steward here, the owner, is that he gives different levels of talents to different servants according to their ability. Yeah, one gets five, one gets two. The only, the other one only gets one. It's, don't you feel bad for that guy? Only got one talent? You would think so, but <laughs> if you understand what a talent is, you realize no. Because you're talking about, think about talents as million dollars. I mean, it's, it's a huge sum of money. That's what it's relevant uh, to in the ancient world. So these talents are enormous sums of money. And so the fact that he just has one talent doesn't mean he's got, you know, one $20 bill in his pocket. He's given a great wealth. And so now the master is going to entrust this great wealth, and he wants them to use it to grow his property and his investments. And so I always like to call this the parable of the investment banker. <laughs> and, uh, and then he leaves and he's going to come back and he's going to see how his servants have done. That's right. And so uh, we have five talents. The one who is given the five talents are multiplied, right? He goes out and he trades with others and he makes five talents more. The one who has two does the same, makes two talents more. But the one who is only given the single talent, what does he do? He just buries it in the ground. And when the master comes back, he says, look, this is what I did because I was afraid. I, I didn't want to mess up. And I think there's a real deep, profound you know, lesson in this, don't you think here, Tim? About yeah, Jesus faith. talks about anxiety as something that we have to fight against. Yep. And fear and anxiety come from being fatherless. In other words, if we don't see God as our heavenly father who provides and cares for us, we become fearful and anxious and paralyzed by fear. Mm -hmm. And faith helps us conquer fear. That's right. We can't serve both God and mammon. And oftentimes the reason for that is it's a question of where do we put our trust? The Greek word for faith, pistis, means trust. Mm. Do we trust in the Lord or do we trust in our own resources, our own wealth? One of the major reasons we don't contribute, one of the major reasons we don't give to other people, let's be honest, uh, is because of fear. We think, all right, Lord, if I give this money away, what will be there for me in the day of necessity? And yet that's not really the lesson Jesus wants us to learn now, is it? He wants us to learn not to trust in our own resources, but to trust in him. And so the other uh, servants receive the talents and they, they go out in faith and they take a little bit of a risk yeah. and they multiply what they were given. Yeah, and I love in verse 21, what Jesus says to the first steward when he comes back and does an accounting of him. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. I mean, isn't that what we want to hear at the end of our lives from our Father in heaven? Can you imagine God saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant, right? That is, there's nothing better in our life. There's nothing better, We can, there's no achievement that can come close to the glory and the peace and the joy of knowing that Hearing we made words. God the Father pleased with how we have served him. And, uh, and then he says, look, you have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. 
enter into the mm. joy of your master. Now, Jesus is really teaching something significant there. Right. He it? wants us to see that God isn't just holding out salvation to us in a way that is disinterested. You're not just right? finishing a to-do list. Right. right? God, God wants us to enter into the joy mm. of his inner life, ultimately. And so this is a really important reminder. I remember when I was a college professor, I had a student come to my office one day and she started to explain that she was really struggling in my class because I kept on talking about how God loves us. And she said, I just know that that's not the case for me. I said, what do you mean? She said, I, I know God doesn't really love me. God's angry with me. He, 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 he's given up on me. And I had to explain to her, you, know, you don't understand. God wants you to be saved more than you want mm -hmm. him to want you to be saved, right? I mean, he wants you to be saved more than you want to be saved yourself. And I think we often forget about that. You know, sin will teach us that God is somehow our enemy. We see this in the Garden of uh, the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve sin, they go and they hide from God. Up until this point, they were not afraid of God. But through the serpent's deceit, mm -hmm. we become convinced that God actually has it out for us. Mm -hmm. This is not the case at all. No, and I love how Jesus is, what's at the heart of our Lord, and he's revealing this in this parable, is he desires to share with you and me um, the love and the joy he has in the Father. Right. Right? He wants us to share in his joy, and that's that's what the invitation is. And that's what's so sad about the the, the steward who buries his talent, is he, he refuses to do the labor, the work, and the giving that's required to bring about and an addition to bring more to the master, and uh, and he even says to the master, "I know you're a hard and uh, you know hard and calculating man." In other words, he doesn't have love for the master, right. so he doesn't want to grow the master's property, right. right? And he doesn't expect the master have joy in him either, mm. right? Yeah, he sees the master as just his owner, is just mm -hmm. his boss, you know. Mm -hmm. All right, so after this parable, we read about the scene of the final judgment. And here is where we really get that vision of what it is we are going to be called to account to on the last day. Uh, we read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And let's just highlight here how significant it is that Jesus is going to be the judge on the last day. I mean, to mm. be the judge means you have to be able to read people's heart. You have to have all knowledge, right? And that's precisely what Jesus is claiming to have here. Jesus is nothing less than the God of Israel. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And you know, he will, I just yeah, gotta, that's yeah. such an important point. I want to reinforce yeah. everybody because oftentimes, you know, in the, we know from the historical quest for Jesus that started out of the 19th century, uh, so many German scholars and then others started to look at Jesus. If we look at the life of Jesus, he was, a, he was a good teacher and he was a good moral teacher. But this isn't about simply moral teaching. He's saying he's the arbiter of what is moral and he's the judge of the moral standards, which means he has to be God. Yeah, this no, it's a it's a very profound statement. And of course, a lot of people in the nineteenth uh, century would would say, "Well, it's just not it's just not believable that Jesus would have seen himself as as God." And the the reality is, what Jesus teaches in the Gospels over and over again in many different places is that he is coming to transcend what had previously been expected. We see this in lots of different ways. Um, in Matthew 11, for example, uh, what is to be known about God can only come to us mm -hmm. through the Son, 
And even the wise and understanding can't grasp it. So Jesus is precisely making the point that he's going to show us something that goes beyond what we would otherwise understand. He says, he says he's going to sit on his glorious throne and before him will be all the, he says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And And that should evoke Ezekiel 34. That's exactly right. You know, because in Ezekiel 34, God speaks and he says, I myself will be the shepherd and and I I will separate. I will judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. And so Jesus is here identifying himself with the role that the Lord God himself will perform in Ezekiel chapter 34. And so then we go on uh, and Jesus says he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry. And here it is. What is it that Jesus is going to ask disciples on the last day? What is he going to hold us to account for? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? You know, it's always That's been crazy interesting to me. Because I, yeah. I, if I was there, I would be like, yes, I'm in. Right. And, uh, but the integrity and the honesty of the righteous, Lord, when did we see you? Right. When did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you in prison? They're, 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 you know, they're, they want to know, right. and they're being honest in their integrity. They and then, know, yeah. And then Jesus says, whenever you did it to the least Yeah, this of my concerns brother. me greatly, because I think if I was in the spot, I would say, yeah, I'm glad you remembered that. Thanks so much. You know, <laughs> I'm in. I'm, I'm going in. through yeah. the gates. Yeah. Right. Uh, follow right on, on in there. All right. Um, and so the righteous answer him, Lord, when did we see you do that? And he says to them something remarkable. Mm-hmm. Amen, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, this reminds us of the scene of Paul on the road to Damascus, yeah. right? Yeah, I know exactly where we're... Paul gets called out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Jesus identifies himself with the Christians that Saul is persecuting. And so you see that kind of the the double-edged identification here. It's a two-edged sword, right? On the one hand, if you persecute the Christians, you're persecuting Jesus. But on the positive side, if you take care of of these Christians and uh, and the poor, then you're blessing Jesus. Right. And it's amazing to, to look at this within the Gospel of Matthew, because Who are the brothers of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus says, whoever hears, you know, who are my mothers and who are my mother and my brothers, he says. Well, it's those who hear the word of God, right? And 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 do it. And so um, Jesus is identifying himself with believers. And here we have, I think, shades of that mystical body theology of Paul. Mm -hmm. We also have a remarkable claim here, right? Jesus is saying, whatever you do to the poor you did to me. Well, that's what God says. Yeah, I know. That's so important. Throughout the Old Testament, and of course, one great text that the rabbis loved was Proverbs 19.17, where it says, he who gives to the poor makes a loan to God, and God will repay. And so this idea was so stark for the rabbis to say that God owes you anything would be blasphemous, except that God says it. If you give to the poor, God's on the hook to repay you. And so what you do to the poor, you're really doing for it on behalf of Yahweh. And so when Jesus then says, whatever you do to the poor, you're doing to me, 
he is making the claim that he is the Lord. That's right. Of Lords. That's right. It's it's amazing to compare this scene in the Gospel of Matthew with another very popular text in uh, the first century. First Enoch was. It's not scripture to us. It is quoted in the New Testament, cited by the New Testament. Um, very popular in Jesus's day. And in the book of Enoch, we have a vision of the coming of the Son of Man. And there we read, "Thus the Lord commanded the kings and the mighty and those who possess the land." And he said, open your eyes and lift up your horns if you are able to recognize the chosen one. That's a term for the Messiah. And of course, Jesus says in the gospel, many are chosen. And Jesus is described as the chosen one of the father. And the Lord of spirits, that's God, was seated, seated him, seated the son of man on his throne of glory, which is exactly what Jesus says here. The son of man will come on his throne of glory. And we read, and the word of his mouth will slay the sinners and all the unrighteous will perish from his presence. And there, there will stand up on that day, all the kings and the mighty and the exalted and those who possess the land. And they will see and recognize that he sits on the throne of glory and how he in righteousness, he, he righteousness is judged in his presence. But notice in First Enoch, it's God who's judging, and it's in the Son of Man's presence. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, the Son of Man, is the one who judges, and he says, "How you treat others is ultimately how you treated me." This is very different than what you see in First Enoch. This is so extraordinary. Jesus is clearly taking the role of God. Yeah. And the God of Israel. And I love one of the key terms he uses here is this idea of inheritance. You know, um, that's that's such an important, and I'll, I'll just give a reference to your wonderful book on salvation, whatever oh, Catholic you. should know, because we're talking so much here about salvation and you've given such a great book on this idea. And, you know, I think, Michael, a lot of people get fall into this false dichotomy. Mm. Uh, I don't have to do anything to be saved <laughs> or I have to earn my salvation. Right. And the term Jesus used here that Paul will pick up quite a bit in Galatians and Romans is the idea of inheritance. Yeah. You know, and in the Old Testament, Israel is going to inherit the promised land throughout throughout the book of Deuteronomy. God keeps talking about the inheritance that he has for Israel. Mm -hmm. And now Jesus is talking about the inheritance of the kingdom of God, That's right. uh, which is going to be heaven for us. And we are going to be to be heirs, we have to be children of God. And it's not by uh, doing good works that we earn that inheritance, but by doing the deeds of love, we become children of God or the bride of the bridegroom such that we can then get the inheritance. Right. It's not so much that we earn the works in just a an economic sense. There is an economic metaphor that's used throughout the Gospels, no, no, no doubt about it. But the deeper truth is that we are called to be united to Christ. And as much as you did these, the least of these, my brothers, did it to me. We are called to be united to Christ. And who is Christ? He's the Son. And so what does that make us? It makes us sons and daughters. The only reason I am a son of God, you are a daughter of God, the only reason that, that we can say that is because of our union with Christ, the bridegroom, mm -hmm. right? Who's come to unite us to him. It's so important because Jesus talks about what keeps people from being generous mm. at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is anxiety and fear. And he talks right. about can't serve God and mammon and store up treasure in heaven because Jesus yeah. knows that we're all we're naturally motivated to store up treasure on earth. Mm. But what we oftentimes don't fail is a, is a divine wisdom to store up treasure in heaven. 
And, and so the, the, the man who fails to invest his talent mm-hmm. was paralyzed by fear mm-hmm. and anxiety. And so Jesus goes on for the whole second half of Matthew chapter 6, talking about don't be anxious about what you'll eat or drink or what you wear. Don't be afraid of, of this uncertain future. Because I think, you know, the one thing that paralyzes people from being generous is fear of the future. Mm. Because I don't know what I need in the future because the future is uncertain. Therefore, how can I give in the present when the future tomorrow is so uncertain? And Jesus says, there is a way you can give in the present, uh, even if you have an uncertain future. And it's because your father who is in the present is also in the future. And your father knows what you need. And he provides for the birds of the air mm-hmm. and clothes the lilies of the field. Your father will take care of you. And so you can entrust tomorrow to your heavenly father. Mm-hmm. Well said. When I was younger, I used to think of the offertory at mass as mm. the intermission, right? <laughs> so we've got through the homily. Now we're going to have the liturgy of the Eucharist. Let's just take a break for a minute and sit down. Far from it. The, the, the offertory is a fundamentally important part of the Sunday liturgy because what we're doing there is putting into practice the teachings of Jesus. On the one hand, we're learning to trust in him. We're learning to part with our hard-earned money, right? Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, we're giving to those who are in most need. And of course, that doesn't just apply to the Eucharistic liturgy, but it applies to all the various ways that we support other people. And of course, Thank you to all of you who support us through the mission circle. Otherwise, we would just have these oil lamps. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we would have enough lighting. Anyway, that's right. No, <laughs> exactly right. I mean, I, I, we are deeply grateful for everybody in the mission circle because you help us reach more people. You know, we just did a Bible conference for Holy Week, and we were able to offer it free and get over twenty thousand people because of our mission circle members. They help us. Uh, be able to make these things offer things for free and provide programming informed and it's a great blessing. So grateful to all of you who support us. And then I think, you know, this passage with Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she talked about discovering Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poorest of the poor. And again, you know, we can think, oh, I wish I could be back in the first century to help Jesus. We can, and we can help Jesus today, especially by helping the poorest of the poor. And that's something that God calls us to, to do something beautiful for Jesus by helping and blessing the poor. That's so important. So here we have Matthew 25, three incredible stories where Jesus gives us the final exam. Uh, what we will be measured by and what we will be asked at the end of our life. And so it always fills me with fear and trepidation when I read this because I feel like, oh my goodness, <laughs> I've got to up my game. And I, right. I, I always go back with more humility to God and begging him for the grace to be more faithful to him. That's so important. Well, we want to thank everybody for joining us for our Bible study. Next time, we're going to dive into uh, Matthew chapter 26, and we'll begin with the passion narrative. But we want to thank all of you for uh, joining us on this journey through the gospel of Matthew. God bless you. You can watch this Bible study in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.